0: All right. Well, hey, welcome to Sojourn. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be able to gather with you this morning. And as Alan mentioned, just celebrate and continue to celebrate this Advent season. And so we're going to jump into the scriptures for a little bit this morning. We preach from the Bible every week here at Sojourn. So if you need a copy of the Bible, would you just raise your hand? We'll have a few folks that are going to bring that around. So just keep your hand up till they find you this morning. Uh, we'd love for you to be able to read along with us as we open up the scriptures. We're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 4 this morning, so if you already have your Bible or as you get that from them, uh, feel free to go ahead and turn there this morning. And um, if you don't actually own a copy of the scriptures, you can feel free to take those uh, as they pass those out, take it home with you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. Or if you know somebody that needs a copy of the scriptures, feel free to take that and go give that to them as well. But as we kind of get settled in here this morning, uh, let me pray for us, and, uh, and then we'll jump into Luke 4. Father, we give you thanks uh, that we're able to gather together this morning as your people, uh, as the church. Lord, it is a gift from you that we have one another. It's a gift from you that we are able to gather here on a Sunday morning to sing together, to sing to you and about you, and to sing with one another and to one another. And Lord, now as we open up your word, I pray that we would sit and listen together. That we would submit ourselves as a church to your word this morning and that you would use it in our lives as individuals, but in our life as a community together to transform us and change us. But Lord, I know that that is only possible by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you would allow your spirit to do a work in us this morning, that the preaching of your word would be effective and purposeful this morning in our lives and in this church for our good and ultimately for your glory. So Holy Spirit, do a work. Use these words for your purposes today. We pray we submit that to you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we began our Advent series, and we're calling this series uh, All Things New. And and if you've been around the church for a while, maybe you're familiar with Advent, or maybe you've been in the church for a long time and you've kind of done this Advent thing but don't really know what it's really about, or uh, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard about Advent. Advent And Advent in its most basic form really just means a r- arrival, that we're, we're anticipating and celebrating the arrival of Jesus. And so this season of Advent, as we spend this time leading up to Christmas, really is an opportunity for us as God's people, as the church, to gather together, to reflect and, and uh, re- re- be reminded of the fact that Christ our King has come to us. The, this arrival of Jesus has already happened and taken place, and so we remember that, we reflect on that. But as we do that, we also look forward to the fact that Christ our King will also return one day, and we long for that to happen as well. So Advent is both a looking back to the first coming of Christ and looking forward to the second coming of Christ our Savior. And so as we jump into this Advent season, we jump into it amidst the kind of the hustle and bustle that Northern Virginia already is. On top of that, added on to that to exasperate that even more is just this season of December, of Christmas, where things are just a little bit crazy for us. Whether it's Christmas parties with work or Christmas shopping or decorating our homes or our apartments or whatever it is, there's just a lot going on during this time of year. And so in the midst of all that craziness, I want us to just take time over these next few weeks to answer just a real simple basic question. And that question is, what did Jesus really come to do? If Christmas is about celebrating the arrival of Christ our King and, and looking forward to Him coming again, what did He really actually come to do? And we could quickly run to the cross, right? We could quickly, well, I know Jesus came to die, and that's good, and we're going to talk about that, but is that it? Is that, is that all? Is that the totality of what Jesus ultimately came to do? See, in the midst of all that's going on in our lives, And all that's going on in our world, even right now, we can sometimes wonder what is really worth celebrating this time of year. As we look around, it's not difficult for us to see, whether it's in our own lives or as we flip on the news or or check things out around the world, is that we live in a world where there is a lot of difficulty, there's a lot of darkness, and there's a lot of dysfunction. We, We can flip on the news and see that, but if we're honest, we don't have to look much farther than our own lives to realize that that's the world that we find ourselves in. And, and Alan, last week, kind of kicked off our series in, in this Advent time in John 1 and reminded us and encouraged us with the truth and the reality that Jesus is our tangible hope. He, he's our only true and lasting hope in the midst of a dark world simply because He is God who's come to dwell among us as one of us, to bring light into darkness. And that's good news for us as God's people in the world we find ourselves in. So why did Jesus come? And the most simple way we can put it is Jesus came to make all things new. He came to make all things new. And I I want us to understand that. I want us to rest in that reality. Whether we know and follow Jesus, whether we've been doing that for a really long time, or if this is just all new to you this morning. Maybe you've never really known Christ or you're just kind of checking out this whole church and, and, and God thing. I want us, no matter where we're at on that journey, in our spiritual lives, is to really understand and rest in the reality that Jesus came to make all things new. Now we're going to jump into a text in scripture, I said Luke chapter 4, and if you've already opened up to Luke 4 this morning, you may be looking ahead a bit and saying like, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Uh, There's nothing in here about Jesus being a baby, uh, so what are we talking about here as we look at this text? Well, what I think we'll see as we look at this, these few verses in Luke 4 this morning is that what we'll see, what we'll be able to answer from this is part of an aspect of why Jesus came and how he is making all things new even now. So with that, let's jump into God's Word this morning and may He bless the preaching of His Word this morning. So Luke chapter 4. If you haven't flipped there, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 13 this morning. This is what Luke records in the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus' life and ministry. Luke Luke 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. There's three questions I want to answer this morning as we look at this text. Three questions I want us to to try and pull out the answers to as we walk through this this morning to help us understand why did Jesus come and how is he making all things new? The first question is this, what did Jesus do in this scene, in this scenario? I want us to walk through this text, just really what's going on here? What, What did Jesus actually do? Our second question is why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he do it? And then our third question is: What does this have to do with Advent? What does this have to do with Advent? So let's answer the first question by just walking through the text. Jesus has just been baptized. He, he went to the Jordan River, and we see he's leaving the Jordan River at this point. But he's he's just been baptized by John the Baptist, and as he's come out of the waters, we see in other uh, accounts of the Gospels, uh, there's a there's a voice of the Lord that says, "This is my son." This is my son, and the Spirit comes to dwell upon Jesus. And so this has just occurred in Jesus' life. And at this point, we see that he is then, then going to be led into this wilderness. But something we need to understand, just kind of context-wise, is that Jesus' public ministry hasn't begun yet. So nobody really knows who Jesus is. Nobody really has seen him do anything uh, miraculous or significant yet in his life. This is prior to that actually happening. He, at this point, he's just—he's he, a man as far as culture and the world uh, would perceive him. He's a man from Nazareth who's a carpenter. He, he's, he's a man who's taken up his father's trade and from this little kind of podunk town in Nazareth. But now the time has come for him to embark on the mission that God the Father has sent the Son, Jesus, to accomplish. And that's this, to bring redemption to a lost and dark and broken world. As we learned in John 1 last week, Jesus has come from the Father and has taken on flesh to dwell among us. Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul writes there take, that he took on the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. Jesus is fully human. Even though he is the eternal son of God, he is fully human. And so the way we could say that is Jesus is 100% God and he's 100% man. Man. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but we see the reality is there is one person with two natures. He has both a divine nature and a human nature. And that's, that's important for us to understand as we walk through this text this morning. Jesus doesn't just appear to be a man. He's actually human with human mind and human limitations. So as we look at verses 1 and 2, let's read those again. We'll start to see why this really matters. Verses one and two again say, "And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. It's a, a desolate place. There's no one around. It's far from the safety and security and the comfort of the city. But this is not some vacation for Jesus. It's not like he drove the skyline drive out in the wilderness, the mountains, just to hang out and relax, to see the sunrise, see the sunset, and just hang out for a bit before he went on his mission that God had given to him. No, Jesus is walking into a battle. He's walking into a battle and has a purpose and an intention for Jesus. It also has a purpose and intention for you and for me as well and all of humanity. Luke states very clearly that in this desolate wilderness. Jesus is and has endured 40 days of solitude. He, he's not around anyone. and At the very same time, it's accompanied with 40 days of struggle with the great adversary of God and man, Satan himself temptation was coming all throughout these 40 days when Jesus is is dwelling and hanging out in this desert place, this desolate wilderness. But Luke takes us into the end of this 40 days, kind of to zoom in a bit and see these last kind of intense temptations and battle that's going on with Jesus. And so at this point in time, Jesus is hungry. He's tired. He's alone. It hasn't been a cushy time. he's, He's sleeping outside. This is like Uh, a long camping trip with no resources to help him out he's not around anyone he has nothing to eat he's been intentionally withholding himself from eating fasting during this time so he's he's hungry he's tired he's alone what do you like when you're hungry and tired and alone i mean i don't think very many of us are real uh, uh fun to be around during those times we're like those snickers commercials you know like we can relate to that. We're like, man, we just kind of rage out. We're just kind of irritable and, and it's just things aren't good for us in those times when we're hungry and we're tired and we're loaded. And so it, these kind of three things that are going on with Jesus, kind of the perfect storm for temptation to come and to succumb to sin. It's a perfect storm for that because we know in our own lives when we're hungry, when we're tired, when we're loaded, it's oftentimes where we can react in anger. We can fall to temptation and, and, and click on things in the internet we shouldn't look at or click on or think things that we shouldn't think and, and react in pride we, we know what that's like to be in those moments and so jesus finds himself hungry tired and alone and so the enemy satan knows that and so luke records satan coming at jesus with three overt intense and real temptations we see the verse first temptation that jesus encounters in verse 3 the devil said to him if you are the son of god command this stone to become bread jesus is hungry So so Satan says, hey, just turn this this stone into bread if you're hungry. We have to notice a few things that are going on here. What Satan does first is he attacks Jesus' identity. He says, if you're the Son of God, if you're really God, if you're really the eternal Son of God, why don't you do something about this? He, He attacks Jesus at the very core of who Jesus is. But in challenging his identity, he actually appeals to who Jesus actually is, the eternal Son of God. Because no other human being is able to do something like turn stones into bread. I mean, you and I, if we're hungry, we are having anchoring for a a steak. We can't go out in our backyard and turn our wood pile into some ribeyes, right? And it's not possible for any of us to do that. So Satan's coming at Jesus saying, look, you're fully human and you're hungry. And you're fully God. So why don't you do something about your hunger, Jesus? It's not that big of a deal. Do something about it. The hunger is a natural physical desire. God has, has created us in a way to know that we need nourishment to live. And so our body reacts in a way when we need more fuel, need more food to be hungry. So, so hunger in and of itself is not a problem. It's not an issue. That's not what's going on here. It's not wrong with wanting to get some nourishment. That's not where the temptation lies. The temptation for Jesus in this moment is to usurp God's plans and his purposes and his means to do what he's called Jesus to do. See, in this moment, as Satan comes with Jesus with this temptation, Jesus is forced to think through and and, and deal with, does he really believe that God the Father will take care of him? Does he really believe that God the Father will provide for him? See, as we look at this temptation, I think it's all too common to us as well. We're not, again, we're not tempted to turn something in in our world into food for us to eat. But we ask that same question, will God really take care of me? Will God really take care of me? Will he give me what I need? Or a lot of times, will he give me what I want? Does he care? See, ultimately, it's a temptation here to allow a natural desire to become an ultimate desire. A natural desire to become an ultimate desire and do whatever we have to do to realize that in our own lives at whatever the cost. So what does Jesus do? I mean, it's just a little bit of bread. I have a few stones. Nobody's going to really know about it. He's out there by himself. I mean, it's not going to hurt anyone if he just has a bite to eat. Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone alone. Jesus responds to the temptations of the enemy with a word of truth. And in in quoting this verse from the book of Deuteronomy, he's expressing his faith in the Father. Does he believe that the Father is going to take care of him? Yes. Yes, he believes that. Even though he has real hunger and has real desire for food, a real need, he trusts that the Lord, the Father, is going to provide for him in that way that he needs. He overcomes the temptation for a natural desire to become an ultimate desire. God will take care. God will provide in his timing, in his ways, according to his plans and his purposes. And Jesus believes that. So Satan doesn't stop there. He goes on to tempt Jesus in a different way. Verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So, in some supernatural way, Satan takes Jesus to be able to see all the kingdoms of the world. And, and some commentators and, and, and scholars think it's just the, the current world at that time, so kind of just the Roman Empire. Others think, man, he's showing him all the kingdoms of the world of all time. So America included in that. Everything in the world we have currently and in the future. He's he's showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and all their power and all their glory and saying all that can be yours. All authority over all those things can be yours. And those nations, those kingdoms will give you glory. They will worship and praise you. All you have to do to get that, Jesus, is bow your knee. Worship me. Simple as that. Satan is appealing to a desire for power. He's appealing to a desire for control and personal glory and a personal kingdom. But the subtlety of this temptation is that Jesus already knows that all authority will be given to him. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, the psalmist records there. He says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord God said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So if Jesus knows that truth, knows that promise, if Satan knows that truth and knows that promise to Jesus, why is he throwing this out as an option for Jesus right here, right now? Because he's tempting Jesus to be a shortcut Savior. Be a shortcut Savior. Gets what's ultimately yours at the cost of sacrificing a little bit of worship, a little bit of loyalty to God. You don't need to suffer, Jesus. You don't have to wait for this, Jesus. You don't need to endure. There's a better way, an easier way to get what's rightfully yours. All you have to do is bow down to me. Look, you don't even have to give me all your worship. Just give me a little bit of it. All this can be yours. Was Jesus willing to give worship to something or someone else for personal glory? Did Jesus hold God as first place and priority in his life? See, I think this temptation is common to us as well we're not tempted to have all kingdoms give us glory right we're we're not tempted to, to, to believe that we can have all authority of all nations and all kingdoms i don't think most of us maybe all of us but maybe not most of us are megalomaniacs right but we are tempted to give our worship to anyone and anything else besides god who alone deserves our worship for our own personal means and ends see the siren song of our world and culture is to take the easy road to to avoid pain, to avoid suffering in our life, to get what you want, to get what you need, even at the expense of giving your worship to someone or something else. But the reality is that even as our world tempts us with those things, that every time the siren song ends in the same way, death, as we are dashed on the rocks of misplaced worship and empty promises. So how does Jesus respond to this temptation the kingdoms of the world should worship him anyway, right? I mean, after all, he worked in concert with the Father and the Spirit to bring all of the world into creation, into existence anyway. So why not just go ahead and take what's his? Look at verse 8. When Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. There's no indication that at any point in time that Jesus actually contemplated this offer in this temptation, but like the first temptation, he responds with truth. Worship is reserved for God alone. And God's promises and his plans will come to fruition in his timing and by his means. Yes, the world will worship me, Jesus knows, but it'll come in the way that God, the Father, would have it come about. See, there is no shortcut or fast-track to achieve the will of God. There is no shortcut or fast track to achieve the will of God in your life or Jesus' life. And we need, to, we need to understand that because we're tempted to believe there's, there's different ways around what God is purposefully doing in your life even when it's difficult and even when it's hard. This brings us to the last of our recorded temptations here in Luke 4. Verses 9 through 11. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. In some similar way, Satan brings Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and he he tempts Jesus again in relation to his identity as the son of God. But he does it in a different way now. He says, look, just throw yourself off of the temple. And notice what he does. He quotes scripture. He quotes scripture to Jesus. Jesus, you're using the word, so can I. Look, Jesus, you can do this because God's word says he'll protect you. And how devilish are the tactics and schemes of the devil. Satan's up to his old tricks, taking the word of God and twisting it into a lie. So what's going on here? This third temptation is a test of God's care and Jesus' trust of God. But maybe it's a fair question for Jesus to ask. God, I'm sure that you have your, my best interest in mind, but sometimes I'm not, sh- I'm not really sure. Do, do you really have my best interest in mind? So I'm going to check and see. What happens if I jump? Will you save me? I mean, this is a, this is a temptation towards a literal leap of faith. A literal leap of faith. What's going to happen if I actually do this? But the reality is, it's not faith. If Jesus does this, it's just unbelief masquerading itself as faith. Essentially, Jesus would be saying, I don't think you're going to take care of me as a son. So to be sure, I'm going to place you in a situation where you must take care of me now on my own terms. Did Jesus believe that God would protect him? See, Satan is tempting Jesus to commit what we could call rationalized disobedience. Rationalized disobedience. And man, so often we do the same thing. We struggle with our circumstances of our lives, and we wonder, does God really care? Maybe we're walking through something challenging or difficult, or just life is uncertain and unclear. And so we start to wonder, God, do you really care? And so what we can start to do and we can be tempted to do is to create elaborate schemes to rationalize our disobedience. I want to be married. That's a good thing, right? I see it in God's Word. It's a good thing. I want to be married, but I'm not sure God is going to come through. Does He really care about me? I'm not sure. So I'm going to take things into my own hands and I'm going to date that guy I know that I shouldn't. Or I'm going to pursue that woman who I know is not going to help me grow in being more like Jesus and walking in holiness I'm not sure God cares for me so I need to figure out some alternatives some creative ways to making money or creative ways to get what I need and so I'll just use a little bit more credit card debt I'm not going to give to my local church right now because I need these other things I'll use my company credit card just for a few personal items it's not going to hurt anyone And then we can think this, if it isn't okay, if it isn't okay, then God, if he really cares about me, will stop me. He'll stop me from doing it. It's just rationalized disobedience, jumping off the temple. See, at the root of this, we make our personal pleasure, our comfort, our safety, and our security the measure of God's love for us. If life is good or going the way that I want it to, I think, man, God, he's so good, But when we encounter difficulty and life is hard or it's not going the way we want, we question God's goodness and faithfulness. As one pastor says very bluntly, and I think truthfully, he says, Truth be told, most of us are indeed health, wealth, and prosperity gospel adherents when it comes to what we expect for our own lives. We we reject the health, wealth, and gospel, prosperity gospel when it comes to the world, but in our own lives, we are adherents to it when it comes to what we expect in our own lives. The so God's gonna hook me up that everything needs to be great and comfortable all the time. But our pleasure and our comfort and our safety and our security are always in at all times false gods. Because they cannot replace the one true God who alone gives comfort, who alone gives peace, who alone gives security in and through the reality that gives us himself. And he says to each of us, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Satan, you may be using God's word, but you're twisting it. You're taking it out of context. But this I know to be true, you don't test God in this way. See, this simple statement, this quoted verse, reveals something much deeper it's this, that Jesus doesn't need to put God to the test because he can rest in and on the promises and proclamation of God that he is a faithful and good father and that Jesus is his son, period. See, his hope is not in his circumstances. His hope is not in the fulfillment of desires that he has. His hope is in God alone. So what happens? Verse 13, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time time the devil departs but he won't stop his efforts he's going to keep coming at jesus again and again and at another opportune time but this brings us to our second question this morning is why does jesus do this why does jesus do this remember it's the spirit that led him here this was on purpose jesus is not surprised by this god the father and god the spirit are not surprised by this See, one of the things we learn in this text, in this story, is that Jesus was truly human. He grew in his mother's womb. He passed through a birth canal. He came out covered in amniotic mess into a mess of a world. And one of the reasons he did this for you and for me is to be an example to us. To be an example to us. We see Jesus endure temptation as we do, yet not succumb to it. He walks in perfect obedience to the will of the Father. And he doesn't do it in some supernatural way. He does it by believing God's Word and trusting in the power of the Spirit. And the good news for you and me this morning is that we have God's Word. And if we know Christ, then we have the power of the Spirit dwelling in us. Which means that you and I, right here, right now, can fight against temptation in the same manner as Jesus. So Jesus is our example, but that's not the main point of this text of why he endured this 40-day journey in the wilderness amidst the onslaught of temptation from the enemy. Jesus is our example, but so much more important is that Jesus is our representative. He's our representative. If you have your Bible open, so look back just a few verses into chapter 3. In chapter 3 of Luke, we we, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And and I preached on this, I think, about two years ago now. But what we see here, at the end of this genealogy, in verse 38, the last two phrases here is this, Jesus is the son of Adam and the son of God. See, the first Adam represented all of humanity. And when he dove headlong into sin and rebellion in a very similar scene of temptation from Satan in the form of a slithery serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan does what we see him doing here with Jesus. And, man, we need to understand this. All of the temptations that Satan throws at us are oftentimes attacks that seek to malign God's word and God's character. Did God really say? But Satan is a liar. The father of lies, John 8, 44, said. This is his very character. Nothing he says to you, even if it comes from God's word, is not to be believed or be true. But in this moment of temptation, Adam and Eve did not believe God and his word. And they took the bait and they plunged the world into darkness. And so here again, we have a very similar scene. This time, not in a garden, but a barren wilderness. The same kind of wilderness that the people of Israel walked through where they were tempted to focus on themselves and self-preservation rather than the faithfulness of God. So interesting that Satan always comes in Elegant evil. Elegant evil. I mean, it's a barren wasteland. What he offers seems so good, so needed, so necessary. But back in that garden with Adam and Eve, after temptation gave birth to sin and sin to death, God declared a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He said, first, from now on, God's people would be at continual war with sin and Satan. Continual war. That doesn't sound like a good thing. But he ends it with a promise. He says, but it will not always be that way because a second Adam would come into the world and be a serpent crusher who would stomp the head of the sinister snake once and for all. And get this, Satan knew that prophecy. He he heard that from the Father. He heard that from him, spoken over him, that one day his skull would be crushed by a new Adam. And so he thinks, if this is him, if Jesus is this second Adam who's supposed to crush my skull, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to attack first. I'm going to go after him first. I'm going to take the initiative to attack him. Because if I can knock him off track, this is all not going to work out. But see, in his very attempt to knock Jesus off track of his mission to crush Satan's sin, he actually helps Jesus. Because see, if Jesus falls to temptation, there is no salvation for you or for me. There's no redemption. There's no restoration Why? Because in order for Jesus to be able to crush sin, he must be perfectly obedient. And Jesus must be truly tempted in order to be truly obedient. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made, talking about Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. For what reason? So that... He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, a representative for God's people to do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people, to be a worthy sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for God's people. See, it's not just that Jesus did endure this temptation and overcome it. It's that Jesus had to endure this temptation and overcome it. At the center of this vicious attack by an unrelenting, hell-bent enemy were Jesus' faith, Jesus' focus, and Jesus' loyalty. Would he obey God? Would he submit to God's will and plans for his life? Would he trust God? Would he worship God alone? Would he do what Adam didn't do? Would he do what Israel couldn't do? Would he do what you and I need him to do? See, in this scene, Jesus doesn't prove to be merely an example for us. He emerges as the faithful son, the true Israel, the second Adam, the faithful representative. Jesus shows in this moment that he is qualified to be the savior king of the world. And that he will indeed crush Satan's sin and death. Which means for you and I right now that Jesus is our only hope, not only in the life to come, but our life right now. Which leads us to our last question. What in the world does this have to do with Advent? This is good. It sounds good. It's a good thing to be reminded of. But what does it have to do with Advent? And very simply, it has everything to do with Advent. This is not a, a story in Luke 4 about Jesus being a baby and coming in the form in that way. But what we see in this text is the answer, part of the answer to why Jesus had to come in the way he came. Jesus came. He arrived to overcome temptation and sin for us because you and I can't. Jesus came to set you free. Jesus didn't come to protect Himself. He came for the world. He came for the church. He came for you. Here's the good news for you this morning. If you are in Christ, you are free now. You are free now. But while that's true, we also have to understand the reality that right now we are still walking in a wilderness. Christ has come to defeat Satan's sin and death by walking in perfect obedience, by dying his sacrificial death on the cross, and by rising again from the dead. God has made a way. He's made a way for you and me and all the world to be restored and reconciled to him. But as you and I walk in this life, we recognize very quickly that full restoration has not come yet because sin still remains. It's not hard for us to see our world is broken down. Sin remains out there, but the reality is also that sin remains in here. See, at the center of all these temptations that Jesus endured and the temptations you and I are confronted in on a daily basis, from the moment your head lifts off that pillow in the morning, maybe not even that far down the road, as soon as you open your eyes in the morning, is the temptation to self-focus and self-satisfaction. So maybe we really are all megalomaniacs after all maybe just on a smaller scale. We want to be the sovereigns of our lives. We want to be the kings and the lords and the masters of our own kingdoms. And instead of giving glory to God, the only one who deserves all glory and praise and honor and worship, we're glory stealers. And we chase after, after other lovers instead of giving our love and our worship to God alone who deserves it. And this is not something we grow into. It's there from the get-go. You can go hang out with my two-year-old son for a little bit of time and you'll very quickly realize that he wants to be the Lord of his life. articulate it that way it's usually through saying no or throwing something at your head (laughs) he doesn't want to do what we want him to do he doesn't like authority now you and i maybe don't throw the same kind of temper tantrums with yelling and screaming maybe but we've become much more sophisticated in how we throw the same temper tantrum in a way that's more acceptable to our culture and our world but the truth remains is that your life is not yours to rule over And that's a good thing because all of us make horrible kings. See, God in his loving kindness and goodness is king and Lord and sovereign. And he is perfect in all his power and he is perfect in all his ways. Even when we don't understand what he's doing. Even when we don't know what he's doing in our life at any given moment. See, this is where Satan comes in. Seeking to call into question God's character, seeking to call into question God's good word, he often begins by tempting you and me at the root of our identity. Just like he did with Jesus. Does God really love you? I mean, you're having a hard time right now in life. Isn't God supposed to be a good father? He's not taking care of you very well. Does he really love you? Are you sure you're his child? Man, you screwed up again? Thought you were supposed to be God's Child, are they supposed to have the Holy Spirit in you? You're still struggling with that sin? Are you sure you really know him? You could be like God. You don't need him to rule over your life. You are what you do anyway. So just embrace your sin and live a life of freedom. But church, what I want us to see during this Advent season is that you are not what you do. You are who you belong to. And in that is hope. If you've trusted in Christ and you are His and He is yours even now, and because you are His and He is in you, you can overcome temptation and walk in freedom now because Jesus resisted first. You can resist temptation in your life now, no matter what it is. Maybe you struggle with anger or lust or pride or greed or envy. No matter what it is, whatever temptation assaults you on a daily basis, you can resist it because Jesus did for you. See, our our victory comes through Jesus' victory. It's not your victory. You don't have any victory on your own. It's only through Jesus' victory. It's not by your willpower or personal resolve or psychological understanding. You and I can be obedient in this life now, because Jesus was obedient for you, and He is ever present to help us fight against the continued temptation we encounter. Hebrews chapter two verse 18 says, "For because He himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted." Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 say this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then he says this, Let us then, because of that reality, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's that time of need? It's when we're facing temptation. So, when we're tempted to run away from God, to pursue other lovers, to pursue other things to worship, not trusting and believing that God is good and faithful, he says, No, we come to Jesus for help. And man, that's such good news for me this morning because I desperately need help in this life. When I'm struggling with control or fear or pride or, or anger or bitterness, I need help from my Savior who's been tempted in every way that I have and offers me grace and offers me mercy and offers me help. Because temptation is all around. The siren song is always blaring that tempts to drown out the anthem of God and his grace and his goodness and his faithfulness in my life. I need help. And I'm thankful that I have a Savior who knows what that's like. And he's overcome. And now he offers me grace. He offers me mercy. He offers me help to fight for joy in him. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are not what you do. You are who you belong to, and who you belong to has come to make all things new. See, Advent teaches us to wait. It teaches us to long. It teaches us to expect. And that's hard for us. We live in an immediate culture. Everything's at the touch of our finger on a little device. Everything's immediate for us. My wife just the other day ordered something on Amazon in the morning, and it got to our house in the afternoon. That's crazy. When, the, when that starts to happen, that's what we expect. We, we, we want change now. We want what we want now. We are an impatient people. We're an impatient people. See, Jesus was tempted to meet his own needs in his own way instead of trusting and waiting on the Lord. But he didn't succumb to it. He waited. And as he waited, so we wait. Not on redemption. The cross has come. Jesus has died. If you know Christ, your faith is in Christ, then your sin has been paid for in full, past, present, and future. So we don't wait on redemption. What we wait for is for God to complete the good work he's begun in you. We wait for him to make us more and more like Jesus, even as we still struggle, believing that he will. Listen to me this morning. Jesus is not done with you. Jesus is not done with you. He never grows impatient with you. He never grows impatient. He knows exactly where you are right now. He knows exactly what you're dealing with right now, and he knows exactly where he wants to take you. The Advent season, this Advent season, I want us to be reminded of that. I want us to to believe that and rest in that reality, that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to your sin because of grace, because Jesus was obedient for you. And he wants to restore all things in you and he has already begun that work. Jesus came to make all things new. Jesus will make all things new and you are not an exception to that. You're not an exception to that. He is making all things new in you because it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Martin Luther, who was part of the Reformation time period, was asked this question. He asked how he overcame the temptations of sin and the devil, and this is how he replied. He said, well, when the devil comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, who lives there? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out. Now I live here. See, when when Christ fills your life, Satan has no entrance. He has no entrance in your life. So do you know him? Are you trusting in him? Are you abiding in the Savior King who walked the wilderness road all the way to the cross for you? Whether that's for the first time, would you place your faith in him today? Or the thousandth time, would you place your faith in him today, believing he is who he said he was and came to do what he said he came to do? Our church is called Sojourn Church because this is not our home. This is not our home. We're journeying through. We are on a sojourn in a wilderness right now. But as we sojourn in the wilderness of this world, we long for Jesus to come again and finish his good work and bring us all the way home. So this Advent season, may that be what your mind and your heart are most focused on. May it give you great peace and great joy and great hope and great comfort in the midst of the wilderness, knowing that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not, will not, overcome it. And to that we can say amen. As we come to the table this morning, I want this to be our first amen today. Let this be your declaration that your hope is found in Christ alone, that Jesus is better than anything this world offers you or anything that Satan tempts you with. You know, the season of Advent has been turned into a season of avarice. As you eat the bread and drink the cup this morning, may the presence of Christ that's here, that's here this morning in this time, may it lift your gaze off the things of this world. And place your heart and your mind once again on the one who alone is worthy of our worship. Eyes off me. Eyes on him. As you eat the bread and drink this cup this morning, be reminded that Christ was tempted as you are yet without sin. He lived the life you cannot live. And he died a sacrificial death for you. And he rose again to bring you back to the Father. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. So as you eat and drink this morning, be refreshed in that glorious good news. For those of you that are not followers of Christ, as people get up to come and take the bread and the cup to partake in communion this morning, I just want to ask you not to come forward to do that. And the reason for that is because this is a declaration of our hope, that our hope is in Jesus. That we really believe Jesus is the one who makes us new. So if you don't yet have that hope, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ this morning, we just want you to hang out in your seat and we want you to pray and we want you to take Christ today you pray right now? God, would you save me? I recognize my hopes and meaningless things, things that are not going to be, are not going to help me, are not going to help me overcome anything in the darkness of my life, in this world, but I believe Jesus does. Turn and place your faith in Christ today. That's why this church is here. We want you to experience the grace of Jesus. And for those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or head to the stations in the back and tear off a piece of bread, take a small cup to drink, and what Jesus did for you with purpose and intentionality and specificity, Will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we, we give you praise that our hope is found in Christ alone. But Lord, we pray that we would not neglect our greatest hope. Lord, would you give us hope in the midst of our struggles? Would you give us hope in the midst of temptation? Would you give us hope in the midst of this dark world that we find ourselves in? And Lord, may that hope be found in Christ alone. Lord, my prayer this morning for myself, my prayer this morning for my brothers and sisters that you would make us new. Make us new. Lord, please transform and change us. Make us new. And Lord, at the same time, we long for Jesus to return, to complete that good work of restoration. So Lord, our prayer also is, Lord Jesus, come. Lord Jesus, come. We praise your name this morning for your lavish grace that you poured out on us in and through Christ. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.